The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Dear Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable unto thee through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. We began last Sunday talking about the actual definition of a sacrament and said that a sacrament, there being two, instituted by Jesus Christ, two sacraments of the Lord, Holy, Holy Communion and Baptism, and the sacrament is defined as outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. And I talked about some examples in real life of what has sacramental kind of meaning. And I mentioned the uh, one of the custodians had the pocket knife, you remember, and used it to the point that the knife was just about worn out. And I suggested that he go to Walmart and get him a box opener. And he said, no, my grandfather gave this knife to my dad, and my dad gave it to me, and every time I use this knife, it's like my granddaddy was here, and my dad is here with me, both of whom were deceased. So that, that's an outward and visible sign of an inward reality that it had. So that had sacramental value to him. So that's the definition of a sacrament. And in the two sacraments instituted by Christ, first Holy Communion, the outward and visible sign is pretty obvious. In this case, two signs the wine, and the, and, and the wafer. He said, do this as oft as you shall do it in remembrance of me. He also said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So what do those words mean? Well, unfortunately, Jesus himself gave us the definition of those words. He made it very clear in the, in the gospel when he said, In the upper room, take, eat this my body, drink all of, and drink all of this, for this is my blood of the new co- covenant, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. So it's inextricably linked to forgiveness of sins. He said, Do this in remembrance of me. So last week, remember I talked about that word remembrance being more than just a re- kind of a casual reflection. It is actually living into the past. The opposite of amnesia, the Greek word being anamnesis, that is to so live in the past that it affects you physically as well as spiritually in your very inward being. And I gave you the example again of the time I was uh, working my grandmother's peach orchard in a, in a packing shed with peach fuzz, got under my neck, and to this day, if I go to the pickle wiggle or wherever and smell a peach, then I will, I will uh, break out with uh, break out in a rash. But that is to live back into that memory so vividly so vividly that it actually affects you physically. There's a, there is an effectual uh, a change made in you. <clears throat> uh, and uh, as the song says, sometimes it makes me, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it makes me want to tremble. So that's what it means by anamnesis. When you do this in remembrance of me, taking the outward invisible signs. And the crux is that unless we remember uh, to the point that it indeed makes us tremble uh, in awe and in thanksgiving for what he accomplished on the cross, then we will be in a position of regret, we'll be in a position of remorse, 
will be in a position of guilt, <clears throat> which is a killer in more ways than one. If, if guilt doesn't, doesn't kill us now, it will kill us one day when we see the truth. And so Jesus' words, unless you eat and drink of this, this forgiveness, uh, the, the, sacrament, the sacrament of forgiveness, if it doesn't become uh, inward in you and inwardly digested, so to speak, then, uh, then, uh, then you will be in a position of guilt, which is uh, a killer. And that's what this means. I can't help but, but think of Pilgrim's Progress uh, and the Pilgrim whose name, uh, of course, was, was Christian. And what was his problem? Do you remember what his problem was there at the beginning of the story? <clears throat> his burden with guilt. Uh, and he's crying, what shall I do to be saved? And then evangelist comes up to him and says, what in the world is wrong? And Christian says, I fear that this burden of guilt, that is, that is upon my back will sink me lower than the grave. It, it, has anyone ever said something like that to you? Uh, that this, this remorse, this guilt that I'm carrying is, is going to, in effect, sink me lower than the grave. Maybe you felt that way uh, yourself. And unless something is, is done about it, it, it will. Uh, either felt guilt, which is what Christian, the pilgrim, was feeling, or actual guilt. You know, you can be, you can be guilty without feeling guilty. <clears throat> Someone can do some heinous crime and, for whatever reason, not remember it. But nevertheless, he's guilty. He's guilty before the law. So whether it be felt guilt now or actual guilt then, it, it, it is, in fact, uh, a killer. So evangelists, hearing, hearing Christians says, I feel this burden that is upon my back will sink me lower than the grave. Evangelist says in words I've long memorized, if this be thy condition, why standest thou still? If this be your condition, then why are you standing here? Which is a great question. To which Christian answered, because I know not whither to go. Now, again, how many people are in the world are in this condition where they have the felt guilt, but they don't know exactly what to do about it? If this be your condition, why standest thou still? And he said, because Christian said, I, I don't know what I don't know whether to go. I don't know what to do about it. And evangelists, this is all the very beginning of the story an evangelist points him in the right in the right direction and thus begins one of the great greatest allegories perhaps the greatest allegory in my opinion that is ever written and these unforgettable characters try to turn him away you remember not because they were necessarily mean-spirited uh, they had their intentions were good uh, mr. worldly wise man pliable obstinate mr. live loose mr. implacable all of these guys uh, they, they meant him well when they, they said, you know, oh, why are you wasting time going that way? Let me show you the easier way. You know, you've got to learn to forgive yourself. You know, and there, the, you know, all the stuff that typically that Mr. Worldly Wise Man and all of his buddies would, would give you. But Christian perseveres, and at the end, he comes to a place where they're stood across. This is now at the end of the allegory. And below the cross, at the bottom there, there's a sepulcher. Quote, <clears throat> So I saw in my dream, this is Bunyan writing, that just as Christian came upon the cross, his burden loose from off his shoulders, fell off his back and began to tumble and continued to do until it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then Christian 
was glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life and death. Then Christian stood a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should ease the burden, ease his burden. And so that's what Jesus meant by these words. Unless you eat these, you'll, you'll die. <clears throat> so the outward and visible sign of communion is the bread and wine. Eat and drink this in remembrance of me. Uh, and, you know, there is no other reason to take communion. As I said last week, this, this is not the same thing as a parish picnic. Remember the time someone told me he had been to a parish picnic and someone said, why don't we have communion? They said, well, we've already, we've already had our communion. But those are different things. This is not a sacrament of unity, although that's wonderful. And it may be a part of it. But this points to what Jesus accomplished on the cross. So why in the world would, would we consider having, quote, an open communion where it doesn't matter whether you believe or not, just come take communion? We know that all baptized Christians won't be invited to take communion. Why would a non-Christian even want to take communion? Unless it is indeed a sacrament of unity, then I, I can understand that. But that's not the idea behind the communion. The idea is to celebrate what Christ accomplished on the cross, at any rate. John Jewell, in fact, one of the reformers, I'm not sure this is on your list, uh, he said, but this is the fo- it is this focus on the gospel that gives the sacraments their true meaning. And it is only in that context that they can be understood. Only on the focus of the gospel that Holy Communion has its meaning. Now, baptism uh, is done once and for all, and the outward and visible sign, of course, is water. Now, there's an important background to this particular sign or symbol, water, and it goes all the way back to John the Baptist. Uh, The Baptist went into the River Jordan preaching the need for people to be baptized with water. And so this baptism was not altogether new. Historically, in ancient Judaism, they had a ritual washing. And there were two kinds of, basically two kinds of ritual washing. One was a proselyte uh, baptism. Those were for Gentiles who had converted into Judaism because the Jews considered all Gentiles to be dirty uh, and to be unclean. And they had this, they had this ritual washing that they submitted to before they were allowed into the body of faith, before they were allowed into, they were converted into Judaism. But it was not only set aside as a proselyte of baptism, uh, it was set aside also for any Jew that had made himself blatantly unclean, for some notorious sin, and who acknowledged their need for cleansing. And if you go to Leviticus, it's interesting stuff to read, really. 14th, 15th chapter of Leviticus you'll see this myriad of rules and regulation that had to do with this ritual washing. And for those, for, the, any, for those people who had defiled themselves for all kinds of provocative and interesting reasons, they had this uh, ritual washing. So th- this is kind of the background of what John the Baptist was carrying to be, to be baptized. But now what made, uh, he took it a step forward, but what made John the Baptist uh, offer to be baptized was the fact that he, he insisted that they all needed to, to take, they all needed to be baptized. Every, all, all the children of Abraham needed to be baptized, including the scribes and the Pharisees and the good Episcopalians. No matter, no matter how righteous they thought they were, John the Baptist says, you need to be washed, you need to be baptized. What a shocker. And whether he realized it or not, what fully John realized, we don't know. 
uh, but we know that, that this was, he was preparing a new way of understanding things, that we're all in the same boat, and we all have this need to be cleansed. I was talking, I did a baptism not so long ago, uh, and I was talking uh, about the meaning of baptism at the baptism, and, and I made the statement that the only reason, the only reason to be baptized is that because we need to be washed. And the only reason why you need to be washed is because you're dirty. Uh, and in the mother's arm was just, just adorable. It's just, just this precious little girl. Uh, and the father, uh, who was not completely comfortable with my remarks, said, well then, well then, why in the world was Jesus baptized? Was he dirty? Uh, and that's a question I get from time to time. But if we can completely understand the reason uh, why the people flocked to hear, flocked to be submitted and was submitted to John's baptism on one hand. And on the other hand, we can also understand why Jesus also submitted to John's baptism. Then what you really have there is kind of a, an overview of what the Christian gospel is. Uh, why did Jesus submit to John's baptize, baptism? Well, remember, John put the people in touch with their need. And while he, his, his preaching was amazing, and most did step forward, except, of course, the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, they, they were a little bit like the man I used to see. This was in Buford. The man had his license plate. He used to drive me crazy. But on the back of his license plate, ex-sinner. That was his, that was his, his baptized. Ex-sinner. So one day, uh, it was on a drawbridge. You, you, you often get caught on a drawbridge there. So it, it just one of these particular days. Is Jane here? Yeah, you remember that time we were right behind him in the X Center? I said, Jane, I can't stand it. And the drawbridge is open. And I have a few minutes. I said, I've got to go, I've got to go up there and ask him what does he mean by that. And Jane wouldn't allow me out of the car. But, but uh, I never forget that. And I regret to this day, Jane, by the way, I regret that uh, I wanted to ask him what do you mean by X Center? I mean, uh, X condemned, X, you know, X damned, whatever, but X Center. At any rate, uh, there were those who apparently uh, didn't submit to uh, the baptism. But we need to we need to consider what courage it took for those people to go out. I'm going to get to the reformers in a minute, but it, 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 what courage it took for those people to submit to John's baptism. People just assumed that something was wrong with you when you stood when you stood in that line, and of course, the scribes and Pharisees just sat back and and just looked at it. So what can you compare this with? Some time ago uh, in a sermon I preached, you may or may not remember it, uh, it was Jesus in the Lice Line. Do you remember that? I don't know if you remember that sermon. Uh, but it's when the late Great Temple talked about this southern town in which he was born. It's about in the 1940s. There was this one swimming pool uh, in the community, and these swimming pools were health, health hazards in those days, and they had uh, health officials to police them, and children with lice and ringworm and impetigo and... Is it impetigo or impetigo? Impetigo. Uh, and other detectable conditions were not allowed in. And they were subsequently were not readmitted back into the pool until they had a certificate from uh, the health department. But by midsummer, the line in front of the pool, you know, got kind of long and, and miserable. And children would taunt each other. You know, kids are, kids are they're, they're, uh, can be brutal. And I saw you in the life line the other day, and it was a disgrace. But well, this was kind of the stigma, something like this would be the stigma that people have been dealing with when they lined up for John's baptism, which brings me to why Jesus submitted and Jesus' incredible humility and willingness 
that day to stand, the day he was baptized, to stand in uh, the lice line. Uh, we, Jesus had no guilt. He had no lice, if you want to take it, go to the metaphor like that. Uh, he, the Bible teaches us he was like us in every way uh, except guilt. He had no sin. He was not dirty. He needed no baptism. But remember that back 700 years approximately before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah made a, made a very unusual prophecy when he said that the Messiah would be numbered among the transgressors. That was Isaiah 53, 12. And there he was. He was numbered among the transgressors. Transgressors, Because, see, this baptism was the first glimpse that we would see what kind of Messiah Jesus would be. Uh, and through his baptism, he made it a point to af- affirm his solidarity with sinners. And every step of his ministry f- from there on out, he, he would uh, be a friend of sinners, attracting sinners, eating with sinners, uh, and he would later... Uh, die with sinners, sinner on his left and sinners on his right, and and saying, "Father, forgive those, the people below him. Forgive them, for they know not what they do." So we see that these remarkable baptism of the people who flocked out, and then also Jesus, the sinless one, joining their ranks and becoming one of them, such that he could carry the sins of the cross, was a kind of prelude to the Christian gospel. Now. Baptism, uh, as was circumcision uh, in ancient Judaism, was observed uh, as an entrance into the community of faith. But we need to be sure to see that it is not the act of baptism that cleanses. Uh, the application of water is, is, is not like a Saturday night bath, you know, that, that lasts forever. I mean, I, know, I don't know about you, but I used to hate baths. Uh, and I would love to take one bath that lasts forever, but... But, but the, the baptism is not like, you know, you take this bath at baptism and that does it. Uh, because we have to firmly say that that water is a sign of what Jesus accomplished 2,000 years ago, once and for all, always. As in Fran, Flannery O'Connor, one of his great short stories, uh, one of the country preachers said there, There ain't but one river, and that's the river of life made out of Jesus' blood, from which William Cooper, William Cooper made his great... It's great hymn. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sometimes people ask me about the labyrinth. Why don't we also build a labyrinth? And uh, let me say, let me just comment on that. I don't, whatever you think about the labyrinth, you know, is this maze, is, you know, this spiritual journey that you make and you wander here, there, and yonder. And so finally you make it to the center and there you connect. And I said, well, I said, I will go along with the labyrinth if before you got to the center there was a fountain. And you had to walk through the blood. Because if you think that you can get to center and connect with God without going through that fountain, then it is not Christianity as I understand it. Uh, and I said, you know, we can do a labyrinth, but that's the only thing I would ask for is we have a fountain. It doesn't have to be blood, but we have to have something that would symbolize the cleansing that Jesus accomplished on the cross. Otherwise, I think the labyrinth is just uh, a bunch of fluff. Anyway, don't quote me. <clears throat> Now, I want to return to the English Reformers' take on all of this because this, is, this to me, is, is important stuff, and I'll kind of throw it in high gear. And I just remember last week we read some of these quotes, and then we'll move on to something fresh, but Reformers call the water of baptism and the bread and wine of Holy Communion, as you see there, uh, they call them 
a figure, sign, symbol. Is that printed in there? Marks of badges, prints, copies, forms, seals, signets, similitudes, patterns, and representations. John Jewell. First, God declareth his mercy by his work at his only cross. Then he sealeth and assureth by his sacrament. In the word we have his promises. In the sacraments we see them. William Tyndall, the guy who uh, was strangled before he was executed. Translation of the Bible into English. The sacrament doth much more print lively the faith and make it sink down in the heart than do bare words only. As man is more sure of what he hears, sees, feels, and smells, and tastes than what he hears only. And our own patron saint, Thomas Cranmer, our Savior Christ not only set forth these things most plainly in his word, that we may hear them with our ears, but he also ordained one visible sacrament of spiritual regeneration in water and another visible sacrament of spiritual nourishment in bread and wine to the intent that as much as is possible for man to see Christ with our eyes, smell him at our nose, taste him with our mouths, grasp him with our hands, and perceive him with our senses. However, the sacraments are not simply to be regarded as signs or symbols. They are more than symbols. And to what extent that is true, the Reformed and the Protestants will, will not agree with the Roman Catholics. In addition to being signs and symbols, Anglicans with, uh, with uh, traditional Protestants and Reformed churches believe that they are effectual means of God's grace when received in faith. But we've got to be careful there too because it's not our faith that makes the sacraments uh, efficacious. Uh, it's rooted in faith because the, 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 the Reformers will go on to say it's only received in faith do they become, uh, uh, do they have spiritual meaning. Uh, but it's not the, the efficacy of the sacraments is not rooted in the power of our faith or the strength of our faith, but it's rooted, it's rooted in the faithfulness of God and what he has accomplished. Uh, if, if the foundation of the church were built on the faith of the people, if the foundation of the church were built on the faith of the apostles, we'd be in, be in trouble. But the foundation of the church is, is, is built on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And if we have faith the size of a mustard seed, uh, then the, the sacraments are there for us. But once received in faith, the Reformers did say when we receive them, something happens in us beyond just a, a sign, a symbol. I have a great quote from Queen Elizabeth, uh, who was wrapped uh, after Henry VIII. Christ was the word that spake it. He took the bread and brake it. And what his words did make that I believe and take it. In other words, she can't understand it either. <laughs> but if, if Jesus said, this is my body and this is my bread, and she said, then all right, I, then I'll, I'll, there you have it. I'm going to take it and I'm going to eat it. I'm going to believe it. So, but it's, you know, it's, it's hard for many people to understand this because it seemed to suggest that the bread and the wine, for example, in communion, possess some kind of magical power that if we just ingest it, it will become like medicine that will make us spiritually uh, healthy and prepare us for the kingdom of God. And the most common objection that we hear, which is expressed uh, in terms of a question that I hear uh, people say when they talk about the Catholic doctrine of substantiation, transubstantiation, 
is that what happens in that case, if you say it's literally the, 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 the body of Christ and literally the, the blood of Christ, then what happens when a church mouse eats the bread? It was supposed to be a rhetorical question. Obviously, nothing happened because the, because the mouse has no faith. And so uh, it sounds strange today, but medieval people believe that if they receive the sacraments often enough, they would be healed and their spiritual weaknesses of their spiritual weaknesses and made ready for the kingdom. Uh, elements of transubstantiation can be found as far back as Tertullian. Remember, I mentioned him last week, uh, who believed that the Holy Spirit entered the water of baptism and used it as a means to work through the pores of the human body to get to the soul that needed cleansing. Now, he was a smart man. That was just where well, that was that medieval mindset. Uh, you know, gosh, I, I, the story of a, of a man that I did, I did a baptism uh, right here in, in, in the chapel, and after the baptism, there was some water left over, a big bowl of water left over from the basement. He said, can I take that home? I said, well, yeah, yeah, sure, you can take it home. And I said, well, we just had curiosity. What are you going to do with it? He said, I got a peach tree. The thing is withered up. I'm going to pour some of this on there. And I, I said, well, I said, I don't know if this is better than any other water than, than you have there. I mean, you know, it's not like this is magic something here, but. Anyway, I didn't, I didn't make him feel bad about it, but uh, anyway, that, that, it, 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 is, it is that little mindset that something happens that makes this thing uh, more than what it is. It, so it's a symbol, but it's more than a symbol, but we need to be careful. I mean, have you ever noticed uh, that, have you ever noticed in some churches where they have a big wafer and they'll process it? You know, have you seen that? You have a cross and it processed the wafer. Well, you got you know, you have to be a little careful there uh, when people reverence the bread as if it were really Christ coming down the aisle. Now, I know we reverence the cross, but I don't think anybody mistakes the cross for being uh, literally Jesus. But it's a symbol, uh, and out of deference, you, you, you can, uh, some people at least bow uh, to the cross. But uh, I think there is there is some. The reformers saw that there was some. They, they, they warned against uh, making a superstition uh, out, of, out of the wafer or the, or the water of baptism or the, or the wine in Holy Communion. Concerning transubstantiation, let's read what Cramer wrote there. He said, about, he was talking about transubstantiation, that, that the bread, while it still remains bread, it does become uh, the, literally the body of Christ and, and also the, 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 the wine uh, and the bread and also the water of baptism. Cramer said, I acknowledge that not many years past I was in darkness concerning this matter, being brought up in scholastically Romish, Romish doctrine, whereunto I gave too much credit. And therefore I grant that you have heard me stand and defend the untruth, which I then took for the truth, and so did I hear you did at the same time. But praise be to the ever-living God, who has wiped away the solish scales from mine eyes. And I pray unto this divine majesty with all my heart that he will likewise do once the same for you. Now, Cranmer also rejected transubstantiation as being contrary to reason when he said, We also hold that the wine, though it be consecrated, will yet turn to vinegar, and the bread will mold, which then be nothing else but sour wine and moldy bread, which could not wax sour or moldy if it were not bread and wine. 
the greatest blasphemy and injury that can be against Christ and yet universally used through the popish kingdom is this, that the priest makes their mass a sacrifice propitiatory to remit sins as well of themselves as well of themselves as of others. Does that make sense to you what he's talking about there? As if, as if, if you have seen us, uh, Christ our Lord has sacrificed for us. Now, the reformers didn't have that in the, the, that got back in the prayer book and you see some churches do it, but reformers got rid of that because that was too dangerous. Christ our Lord is all, it was sacrificed for us, therefore let us keep the feast, not is sacrificed for us. And Fitzsimmons Allison, who Andrew mentioned today, he, did, he didn't like his clergymen to use that, even though it was in the prayer book. He encouraged us to, to stay away from that. But, uh, 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 James Bradford. Now, James Bradford is an interesting guy. He, he was, uh, he was uh, of course, burned at the stake in July 1555. Uh, and he was the one that said, there by the grace of God go I. He, uh, there by the grace of God goes John Bradford. Uh, he was in the Tower of London, and he saw his colleagues being dragged to the altar and being burned alive. And he said, there but the grace of God goes James Bradford. And he knew that he would also be burned because he rejected wholeheartedly, out-of-pocket transubstantiation. Let's read his quote here as he wrote from prison. The chief thing which I am condemned for as a heretic is because I deny transubstantiation, which is not Christ's supper, but a plain perverting of it being used as the Papists now use it to be a real, natural, and corporal, corporal presence of Christ's body and blood under the forms and accidents of bread and wine. Transubstantiation is the darling of the devil and daughter and heir to Antichrist's religion. Now, I've got that underlined because that was used. Someone uh, wrote an essay in response to uh, a sermon uh, that was preached by one of our, by the presiding bishop, in fact. And that was his response. Someone asked him, what do you think of this sermon? He said, she is the darling of the devil and daughter and heir to Antichrist religion. Anyway, I thought I'd share that with him. <laughs> the chief, may I start over? That's, that was, the chief thing which I'm condemned as a heretic is because I deny transubstantiation, which is not Christ's supper, but a plain perverting of it. being used as the Papists now use it to be a real, natural, and corporal presence of Christ's body and blood under the forms and accent of bread and wine. Transvestation is the darling of the devil and daughter and heir to Antichrist religion, whereby the masses man- maintain Christ's supper perverted, his sacrifice and cross imperfected, I think it is, his priesthood destroyed, the ministry taken away, repentance repelled, and all true godliness abandoned. In the supper of our Lord, or sacrament of Christ's body and blood, I confess and believe that there is a true and very presence of whole Christ, God and man, to be to the faith of the receiver, but not to the bystander or looker-on, or the church mouth. This faith, this doctrine, which consenteth with the word of God and with the true testimony of Christ's church, which the Pope's church thus persecute, I will not forsake, and therefore I am condemned as a heretic and shall be burned. Can you understand maybe now why the Reformers did not prefer to communion table as the altar? They didn't. 
you know, we, we do it now. I, I never felt real comfortable with it, but it's done so much, you, you kind of quit with it. But it was an altar. An altar is where you sacrifice something in, in ancient Judaism. An altar is where uh, you, you make the uh, actual sacrifice itself. Uh, in conformity with the Eucharistic doctrine, reform is not only moved to turn from the prayer book, speaking of the table, or the Lord's table, or the holy table, the table of Holy Communion, but they took steps to remove any and everything that looked like an altar and replaced it with a very dignified-looking table. Now, you got to remember that these, these they were losing their lives over this. Ridley, who was burned at the stake, the form of a table shall, be, shall more move the simple from the superstitious opinions of the Popish Mass unto the right use of the Lord's Supper. That is, the form of a table shall more move the simple from the superstitious opinions of the popish mass unto the right use of the Lord's table. For the use of an altar is to make a sacrifice upon it. The use of a table is to serve for men to eat upon. Now, when we come to the Lord's Supper, why do we come? To sacrifice Christ attain and to crucify him again or to feed upon him that was once sacrificed. And so that was Fitz Amlin's bill thing. Christ our Lord is sacrificed for you. And I, I, I understand the Greek there. There's the Greek scholars will tell you, well, what's meant by is is so forth and so on. But uh, as Fitz says, I, I've, I've studied a little Greek myself is what he said, and uh, I, I know exactly what they mean. <laughs> uh, let's, let's try Cranmer again. Another kind of sacrifice there is. You know, like say, well, there's a sacrifice of, of, of thanksgiving. And, and St. Paul talks about a sacrifice of thanks, praise and thanksgiving. Well, Cramer says, yes, there's another kind of sacrifice, uh, which is another, another kind of sacrifice there is, which doth not reconcile us to God, but is made of them that be already reconciled by Christ to testify our duties unto God and to show ourselves thankful unto him. And therefore... They be called sacrifices of Lord praise and thanksgiving. The kind of sacrifice Christ offered to God for us, that's the first kind. The first kind of sacrifice Christ offered to God for us. The second kind we offer ourselves to God by Christ. Well, it may seem like a small thing to you, but uh, this, was not a, this, this was a big thing to, to, to the reformers. So I, I'll just stop there. We, we, I've just about used all my time. Uh, if you notice there, the 39 articles too, Article 25 in the middle of the page. Sacraments were not ordained of Christ to be gazed upon or to be cared about, but that we should duly and properly use them. So that's, that, that's the thing where it became almost a superstition that, that, the, that the bread was actually the body of Christ. And, they, uh, and, and that is the reason why a lot of, and a lot of churches that are really reformed uh, will not send the Eucharistic bread out into the community with lay Eucharistic ministers because it is not to be cared about. Now, I, th again, you know, we, we, we are centuries away from the Reformation, but these guys, any and everything that they could do to take away from that superstition, acknowledging now, please, acknowledging that it was more than just a symbol, acknowledging that, that there was there was something internally that... that that, that changed into the person who received it by faith, but they were t they took away anything that would add 
two are foster superstition. Sanctus spells, for example, you know, Christ our Lord is sacrifice, you know, take, eat, do this and remember some and they go bong, bong, you hear the bell. So they got rid of that because it made them nervous uh, because it was like, hey, something's happened here. Wow, he's been changed. It goes from bread to body. It goes from wine to blood and now everything has changed. And if you drop one on the floor, you know, gosh, in, in the Middle East, Middle Ages, if you spilt blood down, they would, you know, like lick it up or something. It was, it was frightening. And, they, and reformers got rid of all of that. And uh, if you notice, we at the Advent, we break the bread at a different place. We, we break it like the old prayer book said break it. And it was only in 1979 that we start breaking the bread at the end. Christ our Lord is sacrificed for us. Well, we don't do that. We break it when he says, and the Lord took the bread and he broke it, Blam, we break it right there. Well, that's where Cramer said do it, and that's where we do it. So that's all. <laughs> uh, Dean Limehouse, I've been in Episcopal churches, and I'm not sure if the Advent does it, uh, where all of the unused bread and wine must be consumed mm-hmm. um, you know, during the service. Does the Advent do that, and if so, why? Oh, that's a good one. Well, the reason why they do it is exactly what we've been talking about, because it's not to be cared about. Uh, and but we do, and, and just uh, I, I, just in being a conscious of waste, we do carry it forward. And I, if I'm wrong on that, then I just have to pray for forgiveness that we do carry it from one service to the other. But I have to be careful. You know, we we did it. St. Helens and Beaufort, we did uh, finish it up. And in fact, I'll tell you a little quip quick story that's a little bit humorous maybe but but it's the truth and it'll serve is that we used it on Easter and communion we used the the bull silver and the bull was given by uh, John Bull uh, to the church after his after his wife and was captured by the Yemisi Indians uh, and killed and massacred and so in in 15 in the in the mid 1500s he gave the uh, bull silver in honor of his of his beloved wife who had been killed by the Yemisee Indians. And it's some of the most gorgeous silver you've ever seen in your life. The, the patent... 1700s. 1700s, what did I say? I'm sorry. 1700s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, it's my wife, though. you got to understand. <laughs> so, uh, but, but the chalice is huge. It's huge chalice and it's gorgeous. And we only use it in Easter and Christmas and... So, but it holds so much wine. It'll hold a bottle of wine. And this is port. Okay? So uh, it's Christmas Eve, and I get there, and, and there's a circuit judge over there. Judge, judge, uh, uh, I've been not say his name, the judge. So, uh, <clears throat> so uh, I'm just kind of kidding because they had to fill this thing up, and we were getting ready to sing the going out him. I said, hey, judge, how about clean this up for me? So uh, I hand it over to him, and he looks at it. He said, all of it? I said, yeah, all of it. So, true story. I would not exaggerate this because this is one of my cherished moments and all. So he started drinking. And I saw his Adam's apple, you know, go ahead. Like and he kind of looked, looked at me a minute there. And I said, go ahead. So, so he continues to drink. And he kind of goes down his side of his mouth a little bit. <clears throat> takes a deep breath. <laughs> and so, and if I said, you got it. He just said, I got it. So in any he finishes it up, and he, gets, he drinks. I'm telling you, 
three quarters of a bottle of port wine. <laughs> so he puts it down, and the going out hymn is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And I have never, the judge, the judge's eyes were just so happy and rejoicing. <laughs> and it was a, Hark the Herald. He walked down the aisle. And that was one of my fondest moments in all of ministry was, was uh, uh, Judge, uh, Judge singing Hawk the Angels. Uh, sing that. But, yeah, we used to clean it all up. We, we sure did. And I, 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 I respect that tradition. And, I think that, and the reason is for exactly what you see there on the 25th article. Let's go forth into the world rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. Thanks be to God.